Six Figure Developer Podcast, the podcast where we talk about new and exciting technologies, professional development, clean code, career advancement, and more. I'm John Calloway. I'm Clayton Hunt. And I'm John Ash. With us today are Jeffrey Frederick and Douglas Squirrel. Jeffrey is an internationally recognized expert in software development and has over 25 years experience. Douglas has been coding for 40 years and has led software teams for 20 of them. Welcome, gentlemen. Thanks for having us. We sound so old. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> well before we jump into the meat of things would you maybe give our listeners an introduction to yourself uh, perhaps tell them how you got started in the industry sure I'll, I'll go first i'm jeffrey frederick and um i got started way back in 92 uh in a small company called borland and this is like a dog whistle people who are old enough go oh yeah borland and people who are young kids these days they don't know their history <laughs> they, they're like i don't i don't know what you're talking about um, started at Borland. Um, to these days, I'm a managing director at a fintech company in London, uh, four days a week. And then one day a week, I do executive coaching and executive facilitation. And uh, my name is Squirrel. Uh, so you can either call me Douglas or Squirrel, but uh, I, like somebody else on this podcast, I, I go by my surname usually. And I have been leading software teams for this long time, but not at companies you've heard of, even if you're old, like Jeffrey. So um, uh, <laughs> I'm, I, I wouldn't have worked at any place that probably any of your listeners would have uh, heard of or experienced, but they've all been startups of one variety or another, kind of larger startups and smaller startups. That's been my background. And then uh, in the last six years after being CTO at a number of them and, and making a ton of mistakes and learning from them, I became a uh, uh, expert and a consultant on uh, making your technology team and, in fact, your whole startup more productive and effective and uh, doing that through the power of conversations. That actually, if you wind up talking to your tech team, you'll have a lot more success than if you hide them in a corner. So uh, <laughs> that, that's what I've been doing for the last six years is uh, proving that over and over again at, at over 110 different organizations. I thought just pizza under the door works just as well as <laughs> Surprisingly, the pizza doesn't communicate the user's needs. It's strange. <laughs> it just doesn't come along with the pizza. I was going to ask how you decided to become an expert and how you arrived at conversations being the thing that helps teams. Oh, well, that's a fantastic oh, wow. question. Yeah, I think I started this, Jeffrey. Well, it's but, it's but you your can fault. Jump in. Yeah, it's, it's it definitely to, my fault. It has to start with you because it's definitely your fault. So, so I got into a Twitter argument as a, as a young CTO. Well, not that young, but, but young in experience. And uh, I got into a Twitter argument, one of those useless Twitter arguments that we're all very used to now. But in the early days of Twitter, <laughs> it was kind of new and exciting. And um, uh, there was somebody who was commenting on the sidelines of this argument. And he kept making these completely strange off the wall comments about how maybe it was my fault that my team wasn't effective. And maybe it was that uh, uh, I could have different kinds of conversations with the people in them completely for and it sounded really odd. And whereas having this, what I thought was really productive argument, um, we would now say arguing at the top of our ladders. I was, you know, this kind of debate about uh, you're right, I'm right, I'm, uh, I'm right, you're wrong, uh, uh, over and over again. And he said, you know, it would be helpful if, if, if you were transparent about what you were thinking. I had no idea what he was talking about. Um, and I found it so intriguing <laughs> that I went and found him. And uh, he's this wonderful guy named uh, Benjamin, who um, uh, Benjamin Mitchell, who who had studied 
this old uh, social science technique, this old thing called action science uh, that had been started in the 70s. It was kind of as old as me, um, but I'd never heard of it, didn't understand it. Um, but he kept saying all these weird and sort of wise, but, but befuddling things. It was kind of like the Buddha, you know, you just hear this stuff and you'd say, wait, well, how could that work? So I spent more time with him and, um, started really studying these techniques that, st- the, and the wonderful thing about action science is it got science in the name. So you can go and try this stuff. You, you can actually go and see whether it works. You don't have to wonder, you know, it's like, does gravity work? Well, let's see if I drop something, it smashes on the floor. Okay. Gravity, probably true. Um, you know, clairvoyance. Well, I try to predict what is going to happen. It, it doesn't happen. Probably not true. So you can test these things just the same way. All the things we'll talk about today would encourage listeners to go and try it because you, you won't believe us. It'll be like me listening to Benjamin uh, th- saying, you know, you could actually change your whole organization if you just talked differently. Doesn't make any sense. Doesn't seem right. And I got really excited about this, and then I started bringing other people in. I'd hired Jeffrey uh, uh, into my team. He eventually replaced me and did a much better job. I brought in other folks, and we started studying this stuff. And maybe, Jeffrey, you can take over from there because you've, you've been carrying on that dojo tradition uh, since we started it. Yeah, right. That, so we, that was probably about uh, 2012 that Squirrel and I and Benjamin and an, an, uh, another friend of ours started this really intensive weekly uh, uh, meeting I enjoyed it so much and I wanted also more people to get the benefit of it. So I started bringing it in into the management team at the company I was at and really started disseminating it across uh, first the technology team, um, but then later it was picked up uh, and and took around the whole uh, the whole company. Everyone was trained in this and it just had a dramatic turnaround. Um, and we, we measured, could measure this, as you said, the science. It wasn't an intentional, but we were in a situation where from a survey we'd done internally, we found that the uh, interdepartmental um, scores for mutual trust and respect were very low. And um, I said, well, coincidentally, this communication stuff we're trying over here in technology, it predicts that you will improve your mutual trust and respect if you talk this different way. And so we, when we rolled it out, then a year later, those, those numbers were completely different. We made a massive change over the course of a year. And one of the things I'm really um, proud of there is that not only did we have that direct effect, but it, it's the kind of thing now that even it's been several years as, as people have left the company. Uh, uh, many of them are in touch. We have this alumni group and the, a lot of people look, look back and talk about the culture at the company. And, and this element of the communication is the one that people always say, I, I wish I could take this. I want to, I want to take this into my new company. I want to take this with me. So that's uh, that's really what has, has made it uh, so impactful for me is just having lived through that experience and seen it. Uh, and then as Squirrel mentioned, we, I do these um, public conversational dojos and have now for several years had people uh, show up uh, and um, start learning the techniques and then come back and talk about uh, the impact it's made for them in their lives, uh, either, either at home or in, in their careers. Indeed. And Jeffrey, you should tell those people to hire me because what I did is I went out and <laughs> took it to like all these different organizations because listeners might be thinking, well, gosh, whatever this crazy thing is that, that they're talking about, it probably only works in that one case. Well, um, Argyris, the guy who invented it way back in the 70s, tried it with tens of thousands of people around the world and found that it worked. And then I can tell you from having applied it in hun- uh, literally hundreds of organizations uh, that that um, it, it's uh, applicable and usable in a very wide variety of situations um, and uh, that it's tremendously transformative, um, not only to people's attitudes and the culture and their, their satisfaction, but also to the bottom line. Uh, I, I typically say that if a startup hires me, their their valuation goes up by at least a million pounds. 
And that's not because I am just this fantastic person who knows exactly how they can apply Kubernetes or, or use the right Docker magic to, to deploy differently. I'm the person who comes along and says, you know, it'd be really good if instead of slitting, slipping that pizza under the door, if you went and talked to them in this way, and if you got connected with your development team, uh, and, and if they were developing the software that you actually need, and developers, it would be really great if you had this conversation in this different way with your sales organization. And that is transformative. Um, and a lot of people um, are surprised by it, but then when they see it, they see what tremendous benefits it has for them. Why do you suppose that that's such a novel idea? Is it just a, a leftover from the the way we used to develop software? It's humans. Looking at me, you wouldn't realize that I I too know what Borland is. Uh, <laughs> so I've, I've got a, a few gray hairs myself. And and remember that we used to do software in this waterfall method, right? Then Agile became a thing, and everybody said, "Oh, Agile is is the path forward." That means we don't write requirements. And the the businesses called our bluff and and said, "Okay, now we'll do this Agile thing." go. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but the problem is we didn't really change anything. That's why I said when you first asked, I said, this, it's because we're humans. So what Jeffrey was seeing at Borland long ago, and what you were seeing in, in your long ago experience, and, and some of our the, the listeners are probably still observing is this this um, kind of uh, waterfall, very controlled, um, super predict, uh, an attempt to be predictable, which never works out, that has these huge phases of, uh, of development. We just made those phases shorter, which is a great thing. But what we didn't do is create the trust, reduce the fear, help people to understand why they were doing what they were doing, create effective commitments and accountability. And we didn't know how to do that. It's not natural to humans to do that. It's much more natural for humans when they're under conditions of threat or embarrassment to act in a way that's defensive. And a way to be ineffective, but but skillfully, is to uh, have this approach, which you see both in the kind of Borland waterfall way and in the modern agile way of um, not really trusting your development team, not really uh, reducing your fear of your sales organization and what they might sell uh, that, that you can't deliver and not to take action on that, but to put a process in place instead. And that's what I see over and over again. And I have to undo at uh, uh, organization after organization. It's a great business model for me, um, but uh, <laughs> trying as hard as I can to put myself out of business. Yeah, I think that's one of the uh, the big issues with Agile as it's presented. You know, if you, if you look back to the original concept, it was about communication, but businesses turned it into a process, and it, it doesn't really work as a as a process. The problem was that they didn't define what communication meant. They just said we we value communication over these other things, uh, but they didn't say what communication was. And the business interprets it uh, communication as we need this button and we need it by Friday. <laughs> Which is effective communication. It's very transparent. Well, it clear? <laughs> well, it's actually, it's very clear. They want the button and they want it by Friday. The problem is that there's a whole bunch of other stuff they're not saying. And that's the part they're not being transparent about. And they're not being curious about what the development team might be able to tell them. And the other way around, because this this goes both ways. What you touch on there, Clayton, is is one of the things that really drove us to write the book Agile Conversations together was reading business books that all talk about how important communication is. The thing that's so frustration when you read, say, um, Five Dysfunctions of a Team is it spends pages and pages and pages telling you about what happens when you have poor communication and, and lack of trust and everything else. It tells you how to diagnose it. It's like if you got a, a medical book and it told you, you know, if you, if you lose your sense of taste and smell and you have a, uh, a headache and you feel this way, then you probably have COVID. But it doesn't tell you go get vaccinated or you know, go take this medicine or do something. It doesn't tell you what to do about it. All those books are just like that, as well as a lot of the early Agile and, and later Agile advice 
just tells you, um, here's the disease. Don't, don't have this disease. And the wonderful thing that we found is there's concrete steps that start with things as simple as folding a piece of paper in half that can help you. I think that this idea of just beginning to learn what we're actually bringing to the conversation, because I think this goes to one of the challenges here is that uh, we keep, we'll stress this, this, this are the things that happen whenever you have humans involved, because it's going to come down to the cognitive biases that people have that, that leads them to act in certain ways. And I think the example, what I was thinking of when Clayton described the, you know, agile as a process is a great example because it's people want uh, to have a sense of security and safety and the idea that, um, you know, let's just go adopt this practice. We're just going to go pick that up and we're going to follow these steps. These are the, you know, now agile is the best practice and I can go apply this cookbook and now we'll be better. And we'll get certified. It'll be great. Wouldn't it be super if we could just get certified, then we'll know that we're doing it the right way. Exactly. And that's the point of certification. It's, it's to remove that fear and that risk. Um, and, it, and it is actually that uh, fear and risk is where this, um, not only this sort of behavior of grasping at uh, a plan or a process, a, a cookbook, but it's also where the problems in our conversations come from. And there's one way we know is the right way to behave, um, but then there's how we actually behave in practice when there's any potential for a threat or embarrassment which basically means anytime you want to open your mouth, <laughs> there's a, a potential for that. So it, it comes in quite quickly, but we're unaware that it's happening. So how do we get there to ensure that we have safety and security? And how do we get the trust where we can have those conversations, where it's not just, I'm going to have a conversation with you where I tell you something and you do it? Yeah, that would not be a high trust conversation. That, that would be a low trust conversation. And, and it may be very effective. There are certainly circumstances where, where that would be useful. But most circumstances, um, you, would, you would like to have much greater trust, but people don't know how to get there. So um, I'll, I'll describe briefly um, the kinds of things that they're in the book extensively. And there's some um, material on conversationaltransformation.com where you can get free videos and uh, blog articles and all kinds of stuff about how to do this. It's, it's, it's not trivial, um, but it's trivial to describe. Because what you do is you take a piece of paper and a pen. It, it, it helps if you have a, a, a couple of colors of pen, but you can do it with one. Um, you fold the paper in half and then unfold it, and you wind up with two columns. And on one side of the column, the, the, the paper, you write what you uh, actually said and what you thought. Now, you might not know. You might even have a Slack conversation, so you can go look at it. Um, but in many cases, you'll just be remembering. That's fine. The, your brain will just do the same thing as it did in the conversation. It'll make the same mistakes, so you'll, you'll have the same material to analyze. <laughs> um, and then on the left-hand side, you write down what you were thinking and feeling during the conversation. Um, if you happen to be telepathic, you can write what the other person was thinking and feeling, but otherwise you can't. You can only if they're write telepathic, you, though, they knew you were going to say that. So Yeah, exactly. So you, you really don't need to listen to the rest of the podcast. Just get in touch with us. We have some stock market investments <laughs> to make. But, um, uh, assuming you're not telepathic, you write the uh, what you were thinking and feeling on the left-hand side. And then you do a couple simple steps. Um, you look for things like question marks, which are indicators of um, curiosity. Can't be curious if you don't ask any questions. And uh, you look for things that you thought but didn't say. And that's a signal for transparency. If there's something that you thought, like, uh, gosh, that Ash guy, he just isn't really listening. He's, he's concentrating on something else. He's looking off into space. It's I'm picking on you, Ash, because you happen to be on my screen. <laughs> um, sorry, but uh, and you're not doing that at all. But if I were to think that but not say it, then that would not be transparent. But if I were to say, Ash, it looks like you might be a bit distracted. Is there something else going on? That would be an example of being transparent 
And then curious, I'd be finding out from Ash that, in fact, he might be looking at the clock to see if he could extend the podcast time because it's so enthralling, right? Then I would be learning something new as part of the conversation. And if this sounds weird, if this sounds like an odd thing to do, you're getting the experience I was describing at the beginning of of listening to Benjamin and thinking, this comes from Mars. What what was this guy talking about? (laughs) Did he just land from an alien ship? It will sound very strange and unusual. The, The benefit is that if you take just as if you take your code as an object of, of study, and if you say, I'm going to test this code, and I'm going to have code reviews, and I'm going to, to investigate how to make it better, that's how we got better at writing code. You know, The original coding that people did on punch cards in the 50s, they didn't have code reviews and this kind of stuff. <laughs> Maybe they did, and I don't know about it. I'm not that old. But um, it, it, we, we learned how to do these things better by looking at coding as not just a thing you did on punch cards, but as a, a, a mental activity that and it's of value in its own right. And um, that's what we're advocating that people do with their conversations. And when you look at them as first class elements of your culture, you suddenly find there are all kinds of things that you could do differently, not the other person, but you could do differently that would improve that conversation and um, uh, massively increase trust. And in fact, the, the value that you're getting from the cultural change that you're trying to implement. And I'll just say here, because one of the key elements is is this element that you need to practice it, because what we're describing here is not a belief system. Mm-hmm. A lot of people believe they should have trust. A lot of people, you know, everyone would espouse, oh, yes, we should have trust. In fact, I should be curious. I should share my thoughts. I should care about other people's thoughts. Diversity is strength. The more ideas we get in here, the better decision we're going to make. Everyone believes that. So this is not about learning something to believe. In fact, because it's things you already believe. It's things that you don't do because this is about skills. Do you have the skills to control your conversation in the face of interpersonal threat? Meaning, you know, I'm in this group of people and I'm worried about what they might think. Um, you know, I don't want to upset. Uh, uh, I'm going to go with, with with John. Why not? You know, I'm gonna, I don't want to upset John uh, by by bringing this up. Uh, you know, he seems really attached to his idea. I think he's missing something, but I, you know, I I don't want to cause a fight. And you know, it's almost lunchtime. So we let these things go, and uh, it's it's this gap between what we believe and what we do is where the problems come. And I think this becomes a big obstacle to people actually practicing the skills. So that I find when people who've read the book, I hear one of two things from them. Uh, one group says, oh, I really love the book. There's so many interesting ideas in there. <laughs> I really enjoyed it. I say, interesting. Have you folded the paper yet and done a conversational analysis? They're, oh, no, I haven't done that yet. <laughs> the other group of people said, wow, I really like your book, but it's also a really slow read. <laughs> it's it's taking me, I have to, I'm doing these exercises and I'm writing stuff out and it's really uncomfortable and it, and it takes a lot of effort. Uh, and I'm like, oh, great. And, and of the two, it's, those are the people who are getting uh, the benefit. So this idea of it being a, a skill that you need to develop. But I like the analogy uh, that uh, Squirrel used to to code, and uh, and we talked about agile, the the technical skills of agile, like test driven development. It's the kind of things people say, like, oh yeah, you know, we should we should pair and we should do TDD, and you know, we, we should be testing frequently and checking in small batches. But that's just an, a, a theory until you actually put it into practice, until you actually need to develop those skills to do it. And then suddenly, wow, it's actually it sounded really good, but I'm doing it and it's really hard. <laughs> Maybe it's not such a good idea after all. No, 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 stick with it. <laughs> So I, I have uh, an innate ability, uh, let's call it, to uh, to be unintentionally blunt in conversations, uh, which John can tell you leads to some frustration uh, for me at work because then people won't listen to me because I've told them something they didn't want to hear or the, in a way they didn't want to hear it. Is fixing that um, a matter of practice? Are there, are there tips 
uh, maybe in in the book that would that would help with that? Yeah, absolutely. Let's start with with this idea of recording your conversations, and then each chapter in the book has particular tools. And the one that comes immediately to mind for me is uh, in chapter three, the trust conversation, and we bring in uh, a tool to help use in your conversation analysis of which called the ladder of inference. But but my favorite name for it is is test driven development for people. <laughs> that's right. That's exactly and and and, uh, and that's this idea of the ladder of inference for TDD for people. It, the reason it came to mind for me, Clayton, is because it sounds like if you're saying I'm blunt, well, that seems you're you're doing well on the transparency. How about the other side? As far as curiosity, have you uh, tested your understanding uh, of what, what they believe and why they believe it? And also, when you share it. Are you sharing your reasoning uh, or just the conclusion? So an example, in, in, when you say you're blunt, it could be anything from, well, that's dumb. You know, that that could be it. Like, well, okay, blunt, transparent of, of something, but not very helpful, not very informative. And if you say like, uh, you know, I think, that's, I think that's dumb because the way I understand it is that this is going to happen and this and this. And by the way, did I miss anything in, in my understanding of the situation? And someone might say, yeah, actually, Clayton, you missed this other thing that's going to prevent that. Or, you know, you, oh, okay. The goal that we're after, and we would say in these conversations, we would describe as mutual learning conversations. It's not necessarily that we're going to agree in a conversation. It's not reasonable that any two people, let alone five people like we have here, that if we put out, you know, shared facts, if all of us shared what we knew, all of us shared our own views, and we then said, right, now, given all the facts and, and beliefs, what do you think is the right thing to do? There's no reason that people should agree because they're different. They have that's part of the, the wonders of people that they have different experiences and different values and different judgment. They would make different trade offs, and uh, and so we can't we can't really aim for uh, agreement as something as a reproducible thing we can aim for. But what we can uh, aim for is mutual understanding. Do I understand? not just what you believe, but why you believe it, how you got there. Do you understand what I believe and how I got there? And then even if we don't agree, we, we at least have uh, gotten that sort of mutual understanding. And very often that act uh, builds trust and respect uh, among people. Even if you end up still disagreeing, you have now have a, a much more principled uh, a relationship and, and, and disagreement and, and people are okay with that. So that's the, that's the idea that came to mind for me. How does that sound to you, Clayton? I definitely something to try out and look into. Sometimes my, my bluntness actually comes in the form of a question. Like, why'd you do it that way? <laughs> <laughs> well, that would be a great example of given the, cause that I happen to be able to see you. Some listeners may not be able to see you. I, I, I saw you kind of roll your eyes and look askance. And um, I'm, I'm guessing, I don't know this because I'm not telepathic. Uh, I'm guessing that that might not be a genuine question. And a genuine question is one that would... Uh, could result in you changing your mind. So uh, lawyers are great at asking non-genuine questions. They say things like, weren't you at the scene of the crime? And weren't you um, sitting in the car right outside the bank? And weren't you uh, revving the motor? And and they want to pr- uh, produce a particular narrative. When you say, uh, why did you do that? I have the feeling, the way you said it, that you might have a narrative in mind, like because you're an idiot or because you didn't understand <laughs> these obvious things. And um, your laughter suggests that I might be right about that. Yeah, it's like you're in my head. <laughs> yeah, a genuine. Here's here's a genuine question, and Clayton, this is a, you're being a perfect foil for this. You're being a perfect example, and I really appreciate you being this example for us because listeners may be thinking, how how could I change this? That that seems obvious. I mean, I do want to ask, why the heck did you do this stupid thing? Um, and, and you want to know that? 
the thing that you shift is not your curiosity, not not the the level of curiosity that you have, but its subject. And so you start with the bottom of the ladder of inference. But you could think of it as your first test, like in test-driven development. And you ask about something that you can see or hear. So you might say, so I think that what you did is that you used uh, Kubernetes uh, to deploy a COBOL application. Is, is that what you did? Did I, did I really understand that that's what happened? And the person says, no, you were wrong. <laughs> we thought about doing that, but we did this other thing. And suddenly you get a red test and that changes your, reason, your reasoning. And you say, oh, okay. So you use Docker to deploy a COBOL application. All right, now I understand the first step. And the important thing for me there is that you were deploying COBOL. Does that seem important to you? Because that seems really unusual and different to me. And they say, yeah, it sure was strange. I don't know why we were using it. Um, it was Jeffrey's idea. And then you say, ah, now I've learned something new. <laughs> the person I'm talking to isn't the guy who thought up deploying the COBOL application using Docker. It's Jeffrey's fault. So you might stop the conversation and then go have the conversation about why the heck did you do that with Jeffrey. And so I've just given you two examples of getting a red test as you move along slowly the way you feel like when you're doing test-driven development through your conversation, instead of racing to the end, saying, why the heck did you do this? Boy, that was stupid. You start at the beginning, share your reasoning, and very often you find out something else that is useful to you. Notice in neither case did I agree that deploying COBOL via Docker was a good idea, right? I didn't, I didn't suddenly change my mind and agree with the other person. But what I did is I learned new facts about the imaginary situation and that seems pretty dumb. And um, it helped me understand, in fact, the depths of dumbness and um, who's, who was uh, the, the person I needed to talk to about it. Yeah, when you, when you said TDD for people, instantly in my head, I thought red, green, refactor. Well, I'm, I'm, I get red real easy because <laughs> exactly. that's the color of their face. <laughs> yes, okay. <laughs> but what you could do is you could get red in terms of what I was doing, where you could learn new things. Right. And that would be a real mindset yeah, in terms, shift for in terms you. of my understanding. Yeah. Exactly. And then you could change it and you could actually get green. In fact, the other person might say, yeah, boy, you know, we all told Jeffrey that was a stupid idea, but he didn't listen to us. And then you build trust with that person because you have a shared story. And you can say, boy, let's both be curious and let's go find out from Jeffrey why he wanted us to do that. He might learn some really good reason for it. That's the sort of shift that happens. But it, you can see how much hard work it would be for Clayton. Clayton would need to change what he's doing. In no case did we change what other people were doing. We didn't change Jeffrey. We didn't change the person Clayton's talking to. We changed Clayton and he got different results. I will, I will definitely be adding test-driven discussion to the list of things to explore. Excellent. <laughs> Chapter three. You'll enjoy it. There are videos on our website. I really appreciate how the chapters are laid out in the book. It seems you're building narrative, you're building more discussion, you're building new and different skills, starting with improving conversations, trust, fear, why, getting up to commitment and accountability. Those two words in particular seem like they could potentially be trigger words for, for people because I don't want to make a commitment. I, I don't want to be accountable if, if something goes awry. Well, there's a reason it's in that order, because that, that often those are trigger words and dangerous words if you don't have trust, if you ha have not reduced fear, and if you don't understand why you're making the commitment in the first place. So once you've um, laid those foundations, then actually those are those are your friends, because um, you, you understand what you're trying to accomplish. You've aligned with the other person. You no longer think that um, deploying COBOL using Docker is a dumb idea, because you've understood the reason. There is some really good reason in this very strange special case why it's a good idea. And now you're ready to think about committing to improving that and maybe moving to a, a, a much more modern stack. And the other person is ready also. 
So once you have the uh, the foundations, things get uh, much easier. But absolutely, I wouldn't start there. That's why we said start with the trust, start with uh, those elements. But we give um, the same kinds of concrete techniques involving folding pieces of paper and um, uh, doing s- slow tests and so on. The same kinds of methods apply to commitment and accountability once you have the foundations in place. And one of the things is, is it also it's, it's bilateral. And, it, and even just thinking about this, I know my interpretation of the word accountability changed when I heard Ken Beck speaking at, I think it was Java one in something like 2004, 2005. And he was giving a a talk about his own career and he brought up the word accountability and how it had changed. And it's not that he's, and he changed my view of it because it's not about, you know, holding someone to account and, or the fear that someone's going to hold me to account. Oh, who can we hold accountable for this success? You know, not something you hear very often. It's usually, you know, this went wrong. Who do we hold accountable? But he he said, no, no, it's the properly envisioned. It's like, if I'm accountable, it means I'm obligated to render account. I should feel compelled like, professionally as uh, to be responsible for what I've done and, and share my my thoughts and, and what I did and, and why I did it. And that really changed my view. And as a result, when I when I was at uh, Tim and we adopted sort of a, a skills model of things we wanted to uh, uh, rate people on as strength areas for people to develop, we had a pairing uh, and one was judgment and accountability. So it's both your ability to have good judgment and also to account for that judgment. And in part of that, and this is the bilateral part, is the person that you're accounting to probably has some responsibility for what they're uh, I'm telling you, you know, so if someone uh, says, you know, Jeff, can you do this? I, I need to know some more information, not just what they want done, but I need to know things like the constraints involved. We lay out this, this in, in the accountability chapter, if we talk about the, the value of a briefing and back briefing, the person who's, who wants accountability from me is obligated to uh, render a briefing to me that gives me the information I need such that I can uh, actually be accountable uh, in a responsible fashion so it's a it's a partnership and and that idea is it was was really um, powerful and helpful for me in in both directions both as someone uh, asking for an account and also someone who's rendering an account so one one of the things i kind of want to roll a little bit back to the trust and fear conversations because i i see two two sides of, of of things and maybe you guys can address address them but there's the first side where i see People who are, again, this is probably more to that visibility or the transparency uh, question, but they're too afraid of what might happen to them to be transparent with their actions. Maybe they're afraid of being held accountable down the line or, you know, and they, again, oh, afraid of being fired. Accountability right? have, in the like, simple fears. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The who who do we send to the guillotine sort exactly. of yeah. accountability. Right. Um, uh, but then on the flip side, I would say. Uh, what about the situation where we talked about sort of, or maybe in the the op, the, the person of Clayton's, uh, you know, uh, blunt conversation, <laughs> right? Or you're the person who is being handed instructions, but it's a one-way street that these instructions are coming down. And so you feel like you're not being trusted, but maybe you're almost willing to be tr- trust trusting the conversation back, but how maybe you don't feel empowered to have control over that conversation or are there there techniques or tips that you can bring that other person into that, bringing that conversation level, improving that conversation quality without them having to like have read the book and know everything and, you know, uh, kind of uh, fall, fall down that same path. 
good, good news that they, do, they don't have to have read the book for, for you to get effective results. And, and that's and that's one of the first questions we get asked from people is, um, you, you know, we can ask one or two ways. And the first way is, do, does the other person need to be doing this also? But the way I like even more is, if I'm practicing this and the other person isn't, isn't does that mean I lose by default? <laughs> if, if, I, if, I, if, I, if i'm being transparent and curious and they're and and they're being normal do i do i lose and and the, the good answer is no there's nothing about being transparent and curious means that you lose and i like this example where you're saying um you know how how can i change the dynamic with this other person even if they haven't read the book they don't know these theories you know how could that happen the good news is you just by you behaving differently, they will act differently, and mm-hmm. it's and this is it's it's simple that you know people respond differently when their environment changes, and to that other person, you're just environment. Now that's really hard for people to conceptualize because you know we're all like first person heroes of our own movie. <laughs> you know, I, I'm the camera of this movie goes everywhere that I go. I am never off screen. And it's really hard to imagine that to the other person, you're not equally important. <laughs> you're, you're, a, you're an extra. Sorry to fill you in. <laughs> yeah, you're, 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 you're just stimulus. And so when you behave differently uh, and you provide different stimulus, their response will be different. That's the sort of um, humble way of saying, yeah, at, at a baseline, if, you, if you're different, they'll be different. However, there is that challenge of, well, how do I get to be different? And one thing is, you know, it's funny, we went to this idea of like, oh, people might, you know, I might be fired. I happen to be just today reading Amy Edmondson's book, um, The Fearless Organization. And Amy Edmondson is the person who coined the term psychological safety. At least her work brought it to um, public prominence. And she describes it as this, a group attribute. It's not about trust between individuals. It's a group attribute. And it's about interpersonal threat. How do I feel about speaking up? And in it's, it's in not a long-term thing. It's the immediate, like right now, how will I be judged uh, by the person in the moment? If I, if I say this will be seen as I'm, if I'm, as I'm stalling, you know, if they're demanding and I ask for clarification, will they look at me as an obstacle? Might they lose trust? And it's these, it's these small micro decisions that we make all the time. And, and typically humans have a strong bias towards being safe mm-hmm. r- rather than effective. It, we, you know, it's, um, we are social primates. As social primates, uh, our status is the number one determinant of reproductive success. And so anything that would cause us to lose status uh, through embarrassment is, is worse than death. Mm-hmm. And that sounds extreme, but actually the, the studies would show that people would rather risk dying in a fire than being embarrassed. And this, and this, there's a particular study that talks about this. And, and so it, it looks like, like this. If you came into a doctor's office for you're going to take a survey and you're waiting in the waiting room and smoke starts coming out of the ventilation, what would you do? Now, whatever you're thinking, the real answer depends on how many other people are in the room. Because if you're alone, 100% of the people have a thought process that says like this, smoke might be a fire, don't want to die. And they 100% of people get up and says, hey, there's smoke. I'm worried about this. They but if get help just, or they pull the fire alarm or something. Something. But if there's just two other people, so three people in the room, two people you've never seen before, will never see again. They can't fire you. You don't work for them. <laughs> then 66% of the people will sit there and do nothing while smoke fills the room. Enough that they start coughing and opening windows and, and not being able to breathe. 
and, 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 and it's because apparently the thought process is smoke could be a fire, don't want to die. But if I'm wrong, I might be embarrassed. I guess I'll sit here. Because everybody else seems to be. No one else is doing anything. So it's probably okay. And, uh, and there's so much caught up in this one experiment that relates to our communication, which is, for example, that we, you know, about how we perceive risk and how poorly we perceive risk in the moment and, and, and how little we pause to reflect on what the real, what's really at risk. And, and also including our ability to read other people and the belief that they can read us. Because when we, when you ask people who are in this experiment and you say, well, what was going on in your mind? They're like, I was terrified. But I looked around, and the other people were calm. They thought everything was fine. But these are, they're saying about each other. Like, no. So they had the illusion that they could read the other person accurately, which was wrong, and the other person could read them accurately, which was wrong. And, and all of this goes into our communications. It's no surprise for, for us when we go in and we talk with teams who uh, feel like they'd like to have better performance, that the number one cause of why they have communication problems is not unproductive conflict. It's not that they're arguing all the time. And that that's happened some places, but it's much more rare. Much more common is a bunch of people who are worried. They're, they're too nice to each other. And they're not, they're not saying what they think. They're not saying what they believe and because they're worried about how they'll be perceived. Psychological safety is essentially the belief that even if I make a mistake, whatever I say, people are going to interpret generously. They're going to believe that I, what I was saying, what my motivations were good, and it was intended for the, the good of the mission, the good of the group. And I, and I will be uh, judged by that criteria. And when people believe that, they're much more likely to speak up. And so I will say this, in the, in the absence of a group that's already established that, you can begin establishing it by being a person who behaves that way who begins to say, look, I, I'm going to go ahead and build the skills so that even when people aren't making it easy, I can start being transparent. I can start being curious. And by me being curious, for example, then the other people will respond with transparency. If, I, if people aren't sharing their thoughts because they haven't been asked, <laughs> if I ask them, hey, what, what were you thinking here? They're, they'll tell me. So that's, that's what happens in practice. What uh, resources might you direct our listeners to to who who might be looking to sort of improve their conversation skills? Well, wait, wait, there's this book that somebody wrote called Agile Conversations. That's that's a good place to start. Um, but there, there's there's a whole panoply of other things related to it. So um, you could look for uh, books by a guy named Chris Argyris, who who is the kind of original social scientist who um, brought up a lot of this. There's his followers um, who who wrote books like uh, Difficult Conversations, The Elephant in the Room. Uh, Jeffrey is much better on these than I am, so he can add to the list. Um, and there's uh, lists of these and uh, videos and other material that uh, reinforces these ideas. For instance, material on uh, that Clayton could could watch or read on building trust <laughs> through the test-driven development for people. So I, I'm, it's my mission now. I'm going to try to get Clayton to, uh, to, to try some <laughs> of this stuff. Um, but uh, if listeners want to go there, uh, that, that would all be on conversationaltransformation.com, uh, or you could go to agileconversations.com. It all winds up at the same place. Um, there's our podcast, for example, Troubleshooting Agile. We have 150 episodes. You don't have to listen to all of them. You can, you can start with the recent ones. Um, and uh, lots of material on uh, how to apply all of these techniques uh, both paid workshops and um, free material, and I'm doing a live stream next week and all kinds of other fun things. So uh, you can uh, interact with us and with people who have the same ideas in lots of different ways. And I'm saving the best for last. Jeffrey does uh, free conversational dojos, which you can come to and actually practice these things. So I'm, I'm expecting to see Clayton there. 
<laughs> and I'll say this, I just want to stress that last point because it, people often want the resources but um, because it's more comfortable to, to read and think about the, these thoughts. But what really is needed to get better is to, to do the practice, to do the work. Mm -hmm. So if anyone who wants to improve, I would say start with one of the free conversational dojos. Um, you can show with no experience and, you know, a piece of paper and a pen and get started and um, start learning uh, immediately. What has been helpful in your careers uh, that you might share with those just getting started or those looking to level up their own career? I'd say for me, it's been very clear that, that has been a, a focus on trying to be better. And, and that may, may seem uh, straightforward, but what, what that means is um, trying, not necessarily, I, I'm not optimizing for comfort, not not to continue doing what I have done in the past and instead to be saying, you know, is there a better way to do this? And that's been, it's been true throughout my whole career, whether it's uh, um, better tools, uh, better techniques, uh, better process, you know, wherever I always say, wherever we are now at this moment, start with our current condition and then say, you know, what's, the, what are our current obstacles and how can we start improving, you know, right now? And, and that there's the idea of little marginal improvements um, add up over time. And that, that to me has made a, a huge difference over the course of my career that constantly pushing and being open to, to things that are new and uncomfortable uh, and grounding it in what I'm currently doing. And I, so I've, as opposed to trying to fly off to say, oh, the things must be better somewhere else. Uh, things, you know, if only we were in a different organization, then we could do all this cool stuff and that would be great and wonderful. But, but to me, the, the skill has always been, how do we take the, the current problems that we have and, and solve them in better ways? And I'll just build on that by saying that the way I've um, applied that and the way I've used it, and I've seen Jeffrey use it as well, is, is definitely to um, look to interactions with other humans as a very good way to learn what those um, improvements could be. So to come back to the original story we uh, I was telling at the beginning, uh, you know, I had this bizarre set of tweets coming in. And I thought, what on earth is this? It would have been easy for me to just say, well, there's some some strange people out there, you know, welcome to Twitter and move on and do something else. I said, I'm going to find out what those people are talking about. What what has this guy got? And it turned out to be hugely valuable and lead to a completely different career for me and, and uh, huge amounts of growth and value. So uh, if listeners are thinking to themselves, boy, well, there's some nuts on, on the podcast that today. They, they think that you could change your culture by just talking differently and folding pieces of paper in half. I'd encourage you to go and try it. Go and find out more about it. Um, and uh, the most important thing, even if you don't do any of that, if somebody comes along and says, well, there's nothing we can do about the culture, we can't improve our organization. Uh, it's, it's just how uh, organizations are. There's nothing that's better. At least tell them there's some people who are crazy enough to think there is something you can do, even if you're not going to take it on. Please tell them because uh, uh, too often people just accept whatever they have. And I'd sure like people to be more dissatisfied and more frustrated um, and frustrated enough to go and try something crazy like folding paper in half and using uh, test-driven development to improve their conversations. Where can our listeners go to follow you and sort of keep up with what you're working on? Best place is tra conversationaltransformation.com. I'm sure you guys will throw it in show notes and other places like that. Um, if you can't remember that, just search for Agile Conversations. If you can't remember that, maybe you'll remember my name, douglassquirrel.com is another good place to go. And Jeffrey has <laughs> jeffreyfrederick.com. So um, then any of those, you know, if you're driving, don't, uh, you know, try to write it down while you're driving. Please, you know, stop <laughs> and, you know, write this down later. But uh, if you Google for for any of those, you'll, you'll find us very quickly and, and lots of material and, and free stuff and uh, paid workshops and other good things. And of course, of course, that will include links to us on on Twitter and LinkedIn. So we're absolutely we're no, on, of course, on those socials. We are.
then we like people to challenge us. So if you think we're idiots and we've got this completely wrong and it would never work for you, <laughs> that that's the perfect thing to do is, is uh, get in touch with us and tell us why we're wrong. We'd, we'd like to learn and, and we might just have some ideas for you. And we we might end up responding to it, uh, taking on your challenge on, onto our podcast and, and answering, <laughs> discussing d- uh, discussing the controversy. Yeah. Just did that today. So we had somebody disagree with us and it was a very fruitful conversation. So please disagree with us. Jeffrey, Douglas, really appreciate you coming on the podcast today. Thank you. Uh, thanks for having us. That was Jeffrey Frederick and Douglas Gorrell. Jeffrey is an internationally recognized expert in software development and has over 25 years experience. Douglas has been coding for 40 years and has led software teams for 20 of them. If you like this episode, please like, rate, and review on iTunes. Find show notes, blog posts, and more at sixfiguredev.com. And catch us live each week on Twitch, and be sure to follow us on Twitter at sixfiguredev. This has been another episode of the Six Figure Developer Podcast, helping others reach their potential. I am John Calloway. I'm Clayton Hunt. And I'm John Ash. 